Glitterati, we have a very exciting guest today. She is a feminist wellness educator equipped with her PhD in human sexuality studies. She helps folks unpack health from a social justice perspective, and she focuses on the politics of bodies, sexuality, and relationships. And what we love about her is she's able to make her work accessible and educational while still being enjoyable and has been quoted to say it's it's something of close to witchcraft, which we can all attest to. So she's just she's described herself as a white, cisgender, thin, middle class, queer, and mentally ill, and she lives in Philadelphia with her partner and four sweet cats. I love that description, by the way. So please welcome Melissa A. Fabello. Yes. <laughs> welcome. Hi. I'm sure you will, you know, maybe cats will come visit during the during this conversation. I have a feeling they will. My my partner says that I am a cat, so I feel very recreated right now. <laughs> um, yes, fantastic. Oh, we are so excited to have you here today. Um, and she's just told us we're going to have a lot of fun, so I'm very excited for this episode. <laughs> don't, don't hold me to it, but we're going to try. <laughs> I'm already, we're already having fun. <laughs> All right, so we're just going to dive right in because there's so much to unpack with you today. So as a former managing editor at Everyday Feminism, you were and still are dedicated to helping people break down and stand up to oppression through the application of intersexual feminism in their daily lives. Now, first of all, can you explain to our listeners exactly what intersectional feminism is and like what that looks like day to day? Yeah. So the concept or the term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. Um, the concept existed before that. The Kambahi River Collective is like a really good example of people talking about that. But it was originally coined to describe Black women's experiences and how they are not equal or like similar to white women, nor are they similar to black men, their experience of their overlapping oppression of being black and being women, um, is impactful. And so ultimately I think intersectionality is about acknowledging the ways that oppressions can overlap or even just identities in general overlap. So when I think about it, I think like, for example, for me as a white woman, my experience as a woman is not the same as the experience that black women have, as indigenous women have, as women of color have, there it's a different experience. Or as a queer woman, I don't have the same experiences that straight women have. Um, exactly. I don't have the same experiences queer men have. It's there's um the ways that our constellation, I like to think of our identities as a constellation, our different constellations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's pretty sounding. But like our constellations <laughs> um really impact how we move through the world and how the world interacts with us. So from a day-to-day standpoint, I think this can show up in a lot of different ways. Um, One example that I can give of how this might show up is I feel like women and particularly white women, we talk sometimes about this experience where if you're moving down the street, if you're walking down the street, men won't get out of your way and they'll just kind of like stand there um, or like not, not move so that you can walk by. Um, but people of color and particularly women of color talk about like white people and white women do that also. And so when we are understanding, like it's, it's sometimes easier for us to understand our oppression and to say like, oh, men, they're always in the way, but it also, so we might notice that, but we also have to notice when we're doing that to other people, um, and have to be aware of that. 
Um, it's also just as simple as like what we understand well enough to call attention to. So if someone is saying something that's transphobic, but you have no idea about anything about like trans people's experiences, you don't know enough to like call attention to it. And I think that's important. Um, Mm. and then I, I think the only other thing I can think of is like people live political lives. We all do. It's, it's impossible to, you know, undo your politics or your values from your life. They're connected. And some people live their life very intentionally politically. And I think for me, as someone who lives a politicized life and who has, and my community is very politicized. I mean, the idea of intersectionality being a part of like day to day is like, it's almost like, duh, like, like, how could it not? Like it, it impacts all of the ways in which we connect, the ways that we see the world, the ways that we behave. Um, and yeah, so I think that's, I, that's the most basic answer, I guess. Yeah, that's, I thought was very clear. And so, and so let me ask you for people who are like, wow, I'm just hearing this concept for the first time. What are some ways that people can begin to sort of educate themselves and be more mindful? You know, I, I was just talking to someone the other day about when I get this question, I don't know how to answer it because I wish that it was as simple as read this book, take this class, but it's not. Politics don't work like that. Our values don't work like that. Our values are developed over time. And so the simplest thing to do is to listen to people and to believe people when they talk about what their experiences are. That also means that you should diversify the people who you hear. Um, It would be an important thing to do. Everyday Feminism, we talked about, Everyday Feminism is now a defunct website, but it did exist for like five years. Um, And the way that we had, you know, curated the information on that website was from a very compassionate, um, a lot of foundational, um, like a compassionate voice and a lot of foundational information. And all of the stuff is still there. Some of it might be outdated, but I think that's a good resource and it's divided into categories by identity. So like race, gender, et cetera. Um, so that could be a cool place to like learn some kind of 101 stuff. Um, but I think giving yourself permission that your politics are a journey and there's no simple way to, there's no, you don't arrive. There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut and there's no destination. It is just like there's no button. Learning. Yes. And unlearning. Yeah. 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 Mm, Learning and unlearning. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can definitely say I, I felt, you know, we've been doing clit talk for almost four years now. I considered myself woke and aware and like the more aware I feel I become, the less aware I realize I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, it's, it was really a humbling experience. I was like, Whoa, I thought, I thought I was, you know, I knew what was going on and I really didn't. It's like the more um, you so, know, the more you realize you don't know. It's like really exactly. that simple. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. wow, this is never ending. Like this is never ending work. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, right. absolutely. And it's, and it's, I think it's, I think it, what's really important these days is just the commitment to stay in the conversation, even if it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, another hot topic for a lot of our listeners, something that our listeners struggle with is their bot loving their body enough mm-hmm. um, and to connect with it so that it translates into words right asking for what they want is something we do we talk about a lot on this show can you unpack for us your view on oppressive ideology around food bodies and beauty 
in sort of the patriarchal world that we currently live in? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I know, right? So I know you only it's not like, an easy well, answer. <laughs> no. So, so much, yes. Yeah, so much of the work that I do and, and really historically a lot of the work that I've done has been around how we think about and talk about bodies, food, beauty, all these things that are very, very related. And I have an eating disorder history um, and uh, have done a lot of work in the eating disorder realm. So, um Oh, I wish that this, there was a quick fix to this. I, so the, the unpacking, the thought about it, right, is oppression. One of the ways that oppression shows up is at the site of the body, right? So regardless of what oppression we're talking about, if we are talking about race, for example, we're talking about racial oppression, great example, police brutality. It is oppression at the site of the body. Um, if we're talking about disability, th- things that are not um, accessible, right? In the world, the world that we live in is not physically accessible. Oppression at the site of the body. Beauty is another way in which oppression shows up um, at the site of the body is if you do not fit a particular standard of beauty, you are devalued. Um, and it's interesting because we often think about, when we think about beauty standards, we tend to think about kind of two systems of oppression. We tend to think about patriarchy and we tend to think about diet culture or fat phobia, I don't think most people think of it as fat phobia. They think of it as diet culture or the thin ideal, but there's like the mm. flip side to that. So, um, but in actuality, there it's actually every system of oppression has beauty standards. The beauty standard is also being white. The beauty standard is also being cisgender. The beauty standard is also being able. The beauty standard is also being, you know, middle-class or upper-class. Like everything about oppression shows up in the beauty standard. Um, Sonia Renee Taylor, whose work I really, really, really recommend. She has a website and also a book called The Body is Not an Apology. Highly recommend. She coined the term body terrorism to describe this. Um, essentially, our bodies are under siege. Like, the, And especially wow. if we we're talking about intersectionality, the more overlapping marginalized oppressions we have um, or marginalized identities we have, the more under siege our bodies are. And I think that it's a normal trauma response to feel unsafe on our bodies. And I think we have to let ourselves off the hook for having bad body image. Like it's not as simple as a psychological thing where it's like, oh, I I don't like my body and that's my problem. It's a sociopolitical problem. Um, If you are living in the world in an oppressed body, then uh, yeah, you're going to hate your body. You're going to feel unsafe in your body. Um, And so I think like the starting point is understanding this is why feminism or social justice abolitionist like ways of seeing the world have been so important to me in my own journey not just with my body just in life but it's like uh this is something that's happening to me this is not my fault um mm-hmm. and i think sometimes we get to a place where we start to feel like oh if i don't love myself it's my fault and i have to fix it and and really it's yeah. that the world has to be different We've been doing Clit Talk for a while now, over 200 episodes to date, and we have had an influx of new Clitorati, and we still have our consistent OG Clitorati tuning in every week. So we've created a free gift for you. It's called Clit Talk Cliff Notes, the no BS guide to self-pleasure and sexual intimacy. And we're really giving you our best highlight reel of sex tips. We have combined our top sex hacks to give you confidence, communication, orgasms, and the ability to take your pleasure game from zero to 100 real quick and... 
blow any partner's mind in bed. Included in this banging free gift is two free audio trainings, self-pleasure is self-love, and our hottest sex tips. We also have unreleased episodes and a fan favorite from our Sex and Empowerment Signature Masterclass, an erotic visualization, and a video on orgasmic breathing. Oh, yeah. Mm. So to get a little taste of what we do here, you definitely want to sign up for Clit Talk Cliff Notes. Just go to clittalkshow.com backslash guide because clitorati it is possible to have quantum leaps in your sex and empowerment with simple and impactful shifts pussy pussy it's gonna be a good one today yes i'm talking about a clit talk clit talk clit talk talking about a clit talk clit talk clit talk come on girls and boys and everyone on the gender rainbow bring your pussies to the show Mm. Whoa, you just created so much freedom for me when you said that, uh, because as a sex and empowerment communication coach alongside my fellow colleague Klitz here, Mm -hmm. and we just finished leading our first signature masterclass, um, you know, we, we, we have done so much transformational work. And as we just touched on, it's like the more aware we become, the more we realize like what we don't know. We know nothing. <laughs> we know nothing. And I, and then we get to sink into like the privilege it is to like actually that it's a, like to realize it's a lifelong journey. But something I will share personally that I discovered is after our course ended, it was sort of like I was grieving the loss of like not being with all of our women. And I, I came to a meeting with Katie and Lindsay and I was like, I cried to them. I was like, I feel like I'm grieving. Like I don't get to be with these women. And, and what you just said just made me realize like, what I was noticing is that the internal conversation for, I got to, you know, oh, I need to love myself. Clearly I'm stressed out this morning and there's shit to do. And my to-do list is never ending. Oh my gosh, I didn't, you know, do my Pilates today. And that getting hard on myself that, oh, I'm going to go do this alone. Now, luckily for me, I get to come to my meetings with my clits and I'm in, I'm in sisterhood always as a structure. Um, and so they supported me in that moment, but absolutely, even as a, even as a coach, <clears throat> there's this feeling of, I know the tools. Now I'm not doing the tools. Oh my gosh. And then it's this shame spiral into that. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting that you're talking about that the, like the, it's a, it's a shift in the world that we need to see, but also how do we, how do we tangibilize that in ourselves, knowing that the world's not changing tomorrow? It sure isn't. Uh, and I'm sure I really want it to shift tomorrow. You know, and I I think that's a good point because I think it is important for us to imagine. I think it is important for us to envision a different world and to work toward that world and to sit in the reality that we probably will not see that world in our lifetime. And so how do you, and being able to hold both. And that is a, you know, there's some tension there. But I know this is going to be, this is less like a super tangible like tip and more of like a kind of reframe. Um, Mm. But I would say to focus less on the idea of loving as approval and more on loving as an action. So, Mm. you know, have you ever been in a relationship where someone is like saying to you, I love you. And you're like, you know, I believe that you feel that for me. 
but you sure as hell don't act like it. Like you do not treat me. You don't love me as an action. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like you love me in your feelings, but like, I don't believe, but you're not showing me love. And I think similarly, we can approach our bodies that way. Like loving your body isn't about, I like the way my body looks. That's really Mm -hmm. honestly irrelevant. It's do you take care of your body? Do you show love to your body? That is the more Mm -hmm. important thing. And what does it mean to care for our bodies outside of the diet culture socialization? Because the diet culture socialization is taking care of your body, is eating right. It's exercising. It's it's all of these things that like actually aren't caring for your body. It's it's actually usually punishing your body. And so like, what does it actually mean um, to care for yourself. And I think that when we cultivate a relationship with our body, where we are loving on our body, we can sink into an acceptance of our body. Um, that I think is the place that we're trying to achieve, which is like safety within our body, um, Mm -hmm. rather than putting ourselves in a position of being like, I have to love my body today. You know, like exactly what, you know, you were talking about, which is I have to love myself. And then when I don't, I feel worse. And now I'm just spiraling you know, um, right. but rather, yeah. How do I care for my body is I think a better question. I love, I, I love, love that, that reframe. reframe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's a lot of what we did, what we do in our course of like what you just said was it's like, you know, you hear and then you're like, Oh wait, I get it. Because we create a context of what a pleasure positive life looks like. And we have them like imagine what their desired future would be, would be, which is like imagining this world that we may never actually get live in, right? You, like the world isn't changing, but we, what actions would you take to live in, to create your own world that mm-hmm. way? And what mm-hmm. does that look like? And really cr- create your life around your pleasure. So... Well, and I do, I think, I think, I think what both of you are pointing to also is we did create at least in this one space, almost a temporary different world with this group. Mm-hmm. And and the only other time I've personally felt that was when I went to Burning Man. And I truly felt that people were not judging my body and they wanted to talk to me, like the, the person inside of me. And it was this temporary thing. And I felt the same thing. Like after I went to Burning Man, I grieved the loss of what could be possible. And so I do think that it's possible to maybe at least create temporary containers like this um, in a very safe space. Um, Well, I think that has something that that's making me think of is like, we get to choose our community and we get to choose the relationships that we're in. And I think we forget that. And there's certain relationships that, that are really hard. Family, for example, is really hard to remember that we actually have choice around that too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's very, very important to cultivate community where you feel safe. And I know that this might sound, for some people, this often sounds extreme. I don't think it's extreme, (laughs) but some people think it seems extreme. I, in my own life, have made the very intentional choice to interact with cisgender men as absolutely little as possible. I do not find that, I find that probably 99% of cisgender men make me feel worse about either myself or I'm so busy trying to make them comfortable um, that I'm not being authentic, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I finally came to a place where I was like, you know, at the end of the day, this group of people oppresses the group of people that I am in. And I actually don't have to interact with them at all. I can, I can live my life in such a way where the only time I have to interact 
with cisgender men is if I'm like out in the world or like whatever. And even then I can ignore them. Um, but that within my own community, I'm like, I'm not going to foster those connections. I don't want to. Um, and I think that like, and it's just like this sense of we get to decide who is in our bubble and the people who make us feel safe should be in that bubble. And then we get to move through the world in, in a lot of ways, feeling that sense that you're talking about of like, oh, when I'm in these certain spaces, I suddenly feel this kind of safety within this community. What does it mean? And it doesn't have to be like, I'm, you know, it doesn't have to be that big as like X group of people that represents my oppressor. I'm not going to interact with, although I think that that's perfectly (laughs) fine. But like, I, I think that it's really as simple as who do I choose to interact with day to day, um, makes a big difference in how safe I feel in the world. So you're queer. You identify as queer. I would say uh, I, I identify as queer as well. And I, I on the outside, look pretty cis, heterosexual female. And I'm in a poly community and in a, in a curated community. But it's an extended community. I live in Los Angeles, very large. So I do cross paths with uh, people in that community that I, I definitely choose to keep, uh, you know, just see them when I see them, mm-hmm. not uh, invite them over for small dinner parties. And something you just said, like, really opened some, uh, the gates for me around, I noticed that I have a hard time speaking my truth to the archetypal cis heterosexual, you know, cisgender male. Mm-hmm. And that I'm oftentimes, and you said it, that you do this, and I saw myself in this moment when you said that, that I'm really just trying to make them comfortable because it's dangerous if you don't. <laughs> right. And part of that comfort is a lot of people experience having a special connection with me or me being oh, flirty sure. or this. I've also been reflected back to like, oh, I thought I was giving getting an invitation. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, I'm literally just trying to protect myself and like <laughs> not make you feel bad <laughs> mm-hmm. and survive this. And I really want to bang your wife, but that's a whole other conversation. Well, it's like when right? you laugh at their jokes that aren't funny just because you want them to not be mad, you know, like, that yes, that that's, kind of that's another version of mm-hmm. it. Exactly. That's the other version of it. Um, and I, I can confidently share this now that all from, I had most of my sexual experiences with many, many partners from the ages of 19 to 20. I probably slept with like 60 men in that one year and 99.999% of them. I didn't want to, mm-hmm. he didn't want to, we were just making out. And then I wasn't, and then they were trying to go a little further. And I'm like, no, no, no. And what I the, what I learned in those moments is, oh, to get out of this, I just need to do it and then right. I can leave and go home. Yes, that's Ooh. the safest choice, right? That's the safest choice. Well, yeah. and there's always personal responsibility, right? So I, I, I love what you guys are saying and I don't have this experience <laughs> with cisgender men at all. And right. I think there's something about what you said before about really being responsible for yourself. Like in a pull, you know, you're going to go exercise. Are you oppressing yourself? Are you punishing yourself? Or are you doing it to really nourish your body? And in what ways are you doing that? You know, I used to really struggle with with that part of fitness and now re-entering after um, an injury that had me out for several years. What had me... Um, really have to ease in and be super conscious about those mechanisms that can take over that will have me push myself to the point of injury. And um, so 
I just think it's a really important conversation to um, also be, you know, personally responsible like you are. Like you don't want to interact with cisgender men. And uh, Madison, you don't want to, you know, sleep with people you don't want to sleep with, you know, and say no. Well, I think, I think there's, I think this conversation is nuanced. Mm. I think there's well, a lot where of, you can get think, trapped. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of nuance in this. And so my, mm. my question to Melissa would be, um, I totally understand. I think not feeling safe can be a, um, something that society puts on us, even if we are responsible mm-hmm. and something that we really are committed to is gender harmony Mm-hmm. And I guess my question to you would be like, you know, we talk about this elusive world in the future. Is that something that you think is possible and that you're a stand for? Mm. I think ultimately when it comes to destroying oppressive structures. The responsibility of that is on the people in power, not the people who are oppressed. Mm. So if men want to give up power, and if men are going to do the work to, um, if, if we're thinking about this kind of idea of like equality, I don't really believe in the concept of equality. I think that there's like, there's like justice. There's like, like, you can't have equality in an oppressive world. Like it's not possible. That's the point. Mm -hmm. So like, Mm -hmm. but I think it's not about the person down here stepping up. It's about the person up here stepping down. And so I think, um, if there is a world in the future in which power and oppression does not exist, I think that that's up for people in power to, uh, make that happen. Okay. And so, and so let me, I'm just thinking about the people listening right now. So like, what would you say to the listener that's listening right now that's saying that feels disempowering to them and that they could make a change even though they're technically oppressed in that context? I don't think it's that you can't make a change. I just, I just yeah. think that we put way too much responsibility on the oppressed to mm, get out of oppression. I get that. Got it. You know, and I think that it's not or like the way that I think about it is like as a gender minority, and this is part of the, I don't interact with cisgender men as yeah. much as possible is as a gender minority, I would rather spend my time uplifting other gender minorities and spending my time, my energy, my effort on other people who are gender minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that that's like a way that we that we can do that. I think it's just not up to us to like beg for people to do something that they're not going to do, or we can't blame ourselves for being oppressed. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not our responsibility. The responsibility yeah. of oppression is on the oppressor. And, and, and I, and so when we were talking about op- body image, that was like a very empowering context for me. And then when, but when we're talking about gender, I have to like admit I'm being triggered and I'm like, I'm not a victim. But then I'm like, am I just living in denial about oppression? <laughs> I mean... Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, ultimately, I think we're oppressed whether we want to admit we're oppressed or not. If you view the world through uh, the lens of anti-oppression, 
And you don't have to view the world through that lens. But I think for folks, and this is kind of what I was talking about, about some of the ways that like intersectionality can show up in your day-to-day life, that if you are living an intentionally politicized life, you can't take, you can't shut that off. And that doesn't mean that every single moment of my life I am downtrodden, but that ultimately in the world, I mean, there's a reason, like I hear you and I'm not going to tell you how you should and should not feel, but there's a reason why you started this podcast. There's a reason totally. why you, you do this for women. And it's, yep. and it's not because, um, and, and it's, you know, if, if we're talking about like undoing shame, shame is a tool of oppression. So Absolutely. like the fact that women feel shame and guilt and regret and embarrassment in their sexuality is inherently about oppression. Yeah. Wow. Well, you have the PhD, so, you know. <laughs> That doesn't mean anything, but I, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think, I think it's a really difficult conversation because I think that folks do feel like, oh, well, if I feel like I'm oppressed, then I must not be empowered. But like, I don't struggle Mm. with that. I know that I'm oppressed and I feel very empowered to like, Mm. you know, it doesn't mean that I feel victimized. It means that I can recognize Mm. when I am a victim and I can recognize when I am being oppressed and that like certain things you know, as simple as I remember one time going to like Home Depot and trying to buy paint and the paint person was like, uh, you know, okay, like one can is going to be like, is going to be able to like do a room that's like 10 by 10. How many cans do you think you need? And I was like, hold on, let me think. And I was thinking about it. And the person next to me, this man literally was like, she doesn't know what you're talking about. And like in that moment, and I like yelled at this man, but it is not yelled, but I was like, excuse me. Like, but in that moment, like I knew yeah. that that's oppression. He would not have said that to a man. Right. Do you know, right. like that is, it's a small example. It's a microaggression. It's a small example. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean that like now I have to lay in bed all day and be depressed. It just is like, yeah. wow, like what a, that is a gender dynamic that just happened here. Well, and, um, and what, I, what, I, what I hear in that example is like, okay, that was just oppression. You can take the significance out of it and not lay in bed all day. It's like, okay, that's, that's what that happened. And I'm going to choose my reaction and my emotions. Well, whatever emotions come up for you, but you can you can say, okay, that's what that was, and it doesn't have to be personal to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or it doesn't have to ruin my whole day. You yeah, know, right. or, or yeah, whatever. It's, I get that. What I'm getting is that we get to be responsible for our action. Our response. So we don't have. To, we can be oppressed, but not victimized in the same moment. As well as we can experience oppression choose to be a victim or do something else about it. And that's where we get to, you know, claim our personal power inside of it. The oppression, the dynamics already exist. They already were in place, but it's who we get to be about it and the actions we choose to take from there. Yeah. So you're that's saying, what I'm really getting. Yeah, what I'm hearing and and is like oppression and victimization are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I also want to name that it's also okay if in the face of oppression, you do nothing. And, and, or, or mm. are depressed or are yeah. like, I don't, I don't think that yeah. we have to be empowered all the time. Sometimes we're disempowered <laughs> sure. and that's how, totally. right? Like sometimes yeah. we're disempowered and that's what we do. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but. Yeah, we don't yeah, need toxic. Definitely. We don't need toxic positivity. Right, right, right. Well, actually, exactly. I, I I left. Uh, I was working um, uh, as a marketing manager for an energy healing company a couple of years ago. While while uh, this is when Clit Talk was a passion project and not an LLC, and I experienced something in the workforce for the first time. I was like twenty three, so I was like female, 
and young. Mm-hmm. And I had a male, um, my director of technology who I had to work very closely with was um, a male in his 40s, actually gay. And we had our own in- interaction that was really unique. And I found myself getting really, what, what showed up for me was he, it, it was more of my age and being mm-hmm. a young woman that was getting very, oh, well, you probably made that mistake because you'll learn. You'll learn with time. You'll get better at this. And it was like really subtle, but I found myself hating my experience of myself mm-hmm. every time I had to have a business meeting with this, with this gentleman. I wasn't, wasn't really a gentleman. This, this <laughs> isn't really being a gentleman, but with this guy. And I really found myself hating the oppression in the environment so much that it actually created a really toxic um, work experience for me of being ex- like, why does this have to be in the conversation? Well, that's that's why a did- perfect that's a perfect lead in, right? Because one of the things that you do, Melissa, is you you do do keynote speeches to educate students and professionals in hands on dynamic atmosphere, which I think is what Madison's sort of getting to touch at. Um, can you kind of delve into that a little bit? Like what exactly is that? And do you have any tangible tips for people that may find themselves in that situation and what you're doing in these powerful sessions that you're doing? You know, I think a lot about, hmm, I think it's very, very important to like ground theory. Like you can talk theoretical all day and that can be useful in some contexts and in some places, but yeah. I think that like grounding it and understanding how these things show up in our lives is really important. And I feel like a lot of the work that I do is like perspective shifting, like mm. see this other thing and how does that yeah. impact how you, how you feel about a thing and how, how you understand it. Um, you know, if there was a way to like, here's five things you can do to like, blah, 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 that would be awesome. But like, uh, you know, we would miss so much. And then I think the issue of intersectionality comes up again, that what I can do in an interaction is not necessarily something a black trans woman can do in that same interaction. And so it, it just like starts to crumble. But what I think about when, when you say this and kind of like talking, you know, relating this to sexuality, I, for example, I have this like uh, workshop that I give that's like um, looking at five myths that we as women are taught about our bodies um, mm. and how that interrupts our ability to connect to our sexuality authentically. So mm. it's not so much that then I say, here's how to connect to your body, you know, and like whatever, whatever, because different things are going to work for different people. But yeah. rather, if we can blow this myth to smithereens like that this this idea is completely false and here are the people who here are the kind of ways or who it benefits for us to believe this bullshit um and if we can like in our own self kind of like recognize that like we don't have to fulfill that myth how does that change your interactions So Mm. as an example, like one of the myths is about, like we talk about, let's say, for example, um, like genitals and like that genitals are supposed to look a certain way that women are supposed to have particular genitals at all um, or that genitals and gender are at all related. Um, But also that within that, that like also the idea of like they're supposed to look a certain way. So if we talk about that, um, and we unpack that because a lot of people will tell me stories where like I was having sex with a man who told me that like my vulva was ugly or like whatever, whatever. And you might believe that because why wouldn't you? Like there's no, you don't know what else to believe until someone tells you what the truth is. And so 
are you able in that moment to say, well, honestly, fuck you. I'm not having sex with you. Like you can leave, you know, does that (laughs) change like how you, or you're just going to, okay. You know, like not that there's anything wrong again, like as we were talking about, like sometimes the safest thing to do, you know, are we have to trust our brains, but like, I think, um, yeah, it's like, how does it, what does empowerment look like when empowerment is about how we see the world and how we understand ourselves in our positionality within the world and are able to communicate that either literally like explicitly to other people or even just be able to like communicate it within ourselves and change what we value and how we value ourselves in the world, um, I think matters. Yeah. Wow. It's important. <laughs> We're covering a lot of ground today. We really are. Yeah. <laughs> we are. We really are. Um, so this, I, I'm going to go off script a little bit just because I, you know, we talk about on the show, relieve, re, you know, um, releasing taboo and, and shame. And I think, um, especially after the last two years and <laughs> the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, like mental health has been a big conversation. And something that really inspired me is when we were creating your biography, you said, you know, yes, include mentally ill in there and like your commitment behind, um, you know, just letting go of the taboo of what mental illness is. Can we, can we unpack that a little bit? And I I think this conversation just pertains like it's more important than ever. So I just thank you for being um, authentic about it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think when we conceptualize mentally ill, right? Like, cause even, okay. So there was a whole process for me. So the, the kind of thing that happened was originally I had used the word disabled. I think it is really important to, to note that mental illness is a disability. Um, and that that is important, but then I was like, you know, we can be more specific and maybe I can change it to mentally ill just to make it more, more specific. Um, cause I also don't want to appropriate like physical disability, um, if that's like a, poss- a thing to possibly right. do, but like, mm. um, and then even I had a process of being like, okay, but if I say mentally ill, people think of something pretty specific. People think of pretty, um, of, of mental illnesses that the world makes it harder to live with. So something like, right. um, like schizophrenia, for example, that like the, the world makes it very difficult for people who live with schizophrenia or people who live with personality disorders. Like the, the world is, is, un- is more unkind. Um, to, to that, to that level rather than people who like experience depression, for example, not that that's easy by any means, but like, it's, it's just a different interaction with the world. Um, and then I had to be like, honestly, I, I don't care. Like if people think that what I mean is like, you know, what I don't mean or like what my experience isn't, right. um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like that's part of the stigma problem. But for me, you know, I recently actually have been really exploring, The ways in which, um, I was recently like diagnosed, I mean, I could have self-diagnosed this, but like was diagnosed by a psychiatrist with generalized anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about how that actually is debilitating that I, Mm -hmm. there are so many ways in which something like anxiety, especially within capitalism, we are just like, that's fine. Like, it's fine. I'm productive because I'm so worried about X, Y, or Z that like I get things done or like, um, or whatever it is, but then thinking about the ways in which sometimes I can't even work because my heart is beating so fast. And I'm like, I can't like, I'm so worried about what I'm going to screw up or whatever that like, I just can't even, I feel like I have so much on my plate that I can't tackle anything. Um, and I, 
I think that something like anxiety, we would like consider kind of on like, like I'm talking about like the low end of that spectrum of like, right. it's relatively easy to live with. And the, the world creates some ability, you know, it's relatively easy um, to get medication for anxiety, et cetera. But um, that is a mental illness. Like I am unwell. Like when my anxiety is high um, or like really my entire life, I am living in an anxious state. And sometimes it goes really high and sometimes it lowers, but I'm always anxious. That is, that is mental illness. Like, mm. and, and I talk about this a lot with eating disorders also, because people don't often think about eating disorders as mental illnesses. I don't know why, because they are, mm. you know, like people they who have eating are. disorders have a fucked up understanding. And I'm talking about myself. I'm not like, you know, I'm a part of this community. Yeah. Have yeah. wild yeah. distortions of reality. And it's, that can only happen if your brain isn't doing what it's supposed to do. If your brain can't conceptualize reality. Um, and that's no one's fault. That's just a brain chemistry, you know, thing, but it's, um, it's wild to me to talk to people and it's kind of like, oh, well, eating disorders are pretty easy to like, take care of just either eat, stop purging or, you know, whatever it is. And and don't binge. Oh my God. And it's like, that's not, it's not that easy. Like that's not, it's like really, really hard. You know, I, I had a restrictive eating disorder. It's really hard to explain to people. It actually, the idea of like, just eat, that is actually like, I don't know how to explain to you that like the so food in the body <laughs> is terrifying. And it's like, that's like, it's not that simple. It's like saying like, oh, you're afraid of spiders? Go crawl into this cave of spiders and that will fix everything. And it's like, that's not how it works. Um, and yeah, well, that is an immersion technique, right? It but is, but I got your my, point. My, my, my <laughs> as long as they're not Harry Potter-sized spiders, maybe. <laughs> immersion but, it, but it is, but it, it's actually it's really fun. interesting. My partner's a clinical psychologist who specializes in OCD, and it's false. Exposure therapy is a really long process. It's like first you sit and yeah. think about spiders. Right. You know, it's, you don't even get to touch, see, look at a picture of a spider for a while, right? And so it's like... Um, it's just very, very, very interesting. And it, and it's interesting that just like with a physical illness, that like a mental illness takes an enormously long time to try to um, reverse. And, and I mean, it, and or, or it takes, a, you know, your entire lifetime of just managing the exactly. disease. Exactly. Yeah. And yes. I have to say like, you're really opening up something for me. Like I never experienced anxiety until the last two years. <laughs> And, mm. and I, I can't sleep. I can't sleep anymore. I, I show up like the heart, the rapid heartbeat, like, and I real and like, just in this conversation with you, I realize I have shame around it. Like, I feel like mm. I've done something wrong to bring it on. And, mm. and I'll be totally, I'll totally tell on myself before I actually like admitted I had anxiety. I thought it was bullshit and I could just will my way out of it. Mm-hmm. And um, it is really debilitating. Like there are, and I'll, I'll just share because I've never shown on the show. Like there are mornings, there were days I couldn't get out of bed. And the only thing that would calm me down is I would like put on an episode of Friends on my phone and close my eyes and just listen to their voices would be the only thing that would like calm me down. And um, and it, it was, I've been embarrassed about it, you know, because I think in the past I've judged people like, oh, anxiety. Like you can just will your way out of it until I personally experienced it. And it is... It sucks. <laughs> it really mm-hmm. sucks. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's just thank you for being willing to like share it. I never considered that it was that it was that it was a mental illness. And well, that, I think you know anxiety is a particularly interesting thing because yeah. 
anxiety and depression are interesting because feeling depressed and feeling anxious are feelings that everybody has. Right. And mm-hmm. so, but when you're saying like, I have like an anxiety disorder, like, like I feel anxiety yeah. when it's inappropriate. Like it's yeah, not like, like there's no happening. reason. Yeah. And, I and think you feel like you're brain, having a heart attack. <laughs> yes. It's like, you literally feel like you might die. And like, yeah. um, Lindsay, to your point that I think is honestly really, really important is for people to like, think about if we could will ourselves out of mental illness, wouldn't everybody, we, we would have done that, <laughs> but nobody wants yeah. to be ill. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, well, I do, I do think that we, so I'm a registered nurse. So I do think that we are in an acute phase of like COVID PTSD as mm. like a generalized population across the globe. Um, so what you're saying as far as like a chronic thing, as far as an, an acute um, anxiety, even if it is over two years, since we're still living in this, um, is there's something to be said about that. It's like not necessarily an ongoing thing, but it is something to manage now. Mm. I mean, it's been going on for over a year and a half for me. Yeah, so has the pandemic. Yeah. Mm, That's what I mean. We're still in it. Like we're still right. in the like acute phase of the um the impact, the uh, mental and emotional impact of what no, we all just went through. It's a right? trauma. Yeah, it's yeah a trauma. right, right. Right. Yeah, a global trauma. Yes, it, <laughs> at yeah. least we're all tra- traumatized at the same time for once. <laughs> well, it's why mental health is, has really risen to the surface as such an important conversation to really tackle and for people to be aware of and and have that really shift like the world that we live in as yeah. it's not uh, a taboo or a, a, you know, there's something wrong with you kind of conversation. Like you're a don't, don't invite, you know, the schizophrenic to the party. You know, yep. it's like something that is, can actually start to be accepted. And... um that we can really like have some empathy for each right. other and take yeah. care of each other and have a mm-hmm. mutual understanding. Well, yeah. And yeah. my and my point was just like the way Melissa was talking about it gave me the strength to actually like sort of reframe it. Yeah. Right, and right. and to just talk openly about it because if I'm having this experience, someone else's. And I have, a, I have a platform to be authentic about it. Mm-hmm. Actually, and yeah. it wasn't until our platform with Clit Talk that I actually was empowered to share about my diagnosis for drug-induced bipolar disorder that I got mm-hmm. when I was 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized, oh, <laughs> duh, <laughs> I have this platform to support the conversation about removing stigma around all of this. Yeah. Whereas before I would never think to dream to tell an employer, someone I wanted to hire me a right. lover. Oh, hello. I am Madison Hall and I like long walks on the beach and I am diagnosed with bipolar disorder. <laughs> I bet you think that's hot for your dating profile, you know, cause it's just something it's like, Oh, you know, and as you said, Melissa, I love what you said about, um, you know, when you, when you're like, okay, well, I don't really care how people are going to interpret mentally ill because mm-hmm. I know what I mean by right. mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And, and that's there's really no, that's no reason to feel stigma for people who are on whatever level of, of mentally yeah. ill. Like, so if that's Absolutely. what you think is, is going on with me, like I, I shouldn't care. You know, like that's, right. that's fine right. because I don't think there's anything you, wrong with and that. And I think it's yeah. important for people to know that you can function in society with, um, with a mental illness diagnosis. You can, you can have it. I mean, we talked about equality, not necessarily being like a reality at all, but like you can, you can 
you can play at the same playing field as the other kids. Absolutely. You know, you don't have to be yeah. excluded from society. Totally. Mm-hmm. All right. So Melissa, um, we're going to, we're going to wrap this covers this juicy <laughs> conversation up, but I do have two kind of just quick rapid fire questions just because I'm fascinated to ask you. I know you're an avid reader. Mm-hmm. What are your top books of 2021 that we should all be reading and why? Okay. Just- well, <laughs> here we go. I, I really thought about this. So um, one book that I really recommend is Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism by um, Amanda Montel. So it's basically a book about how easy it is to fall into something like a cult because the language of cult is all around us. So she's a sociolinguist and she talks about what what the ways that we um, use cultish language all the time and how easy it yeah. is then to like fall into different kinds of cult, whether we mean that like quote unquote, like cult fitness or whatever, or a literal cult. Um, mm-hmm. And the other one is a fiction, is a novel called Animal by Lisa Taddeo. Um, it's really interesting. I, I have like critiques of it too, but I think that like, if you're look, if you're into like thrillers, if you like 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 the kind of like crime, you know, kind of kind of genre, it's basically it, it unpacks particularly patriarchal oppression, but it unpacks layers mm. of oppression um, through this like wild kind of like thriller of a story. So I, I thought okay, it was cool. an interesting read. Fantastic. All right. Awesome. And then Love I'm just, it. I'm so fascinated. We asked this to a lot of our guests and I'm very excited to hear your answer. What makes you feel empowered? Oh, we kind of touched on this, but I think the thing yeah. that makes me feel the most empowered, we talked a little bit about the idea of like decentering cis men from mm-hmm. my life. Um, but that, uh, that includes centering another group of people. So like, for me, I center my like queer femme community. And I think that being surrounded by other femmes who express femininity in queer ways and who, um, have like similar queer radical politics is the thing that makes me feel empowered is, is feeling like really, really situated in that community. I love that. All right. Well, Mm. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on and having this very insightful conversation. I feel like I need to listen to this episode two more times to retain all the information that we just went over. Oh my um, you know, you're you're so smart and you're so committed and it's and it's palpable. Um and I love just how openly you talk about things that people are, are unwilling to talk about. And I believe that it's making a difference in the world. I believe you're making a difference in the world and, and that you're not afraid to say maybe some, what some people would consider controversial things and just having these conversations, which I think are much, much needed in the world right now. And thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And for dealing with me in this conversation. <laughs> hey, <laughs> it was that's great. not how I felt. <laughs> um, you're fabulous. It's such a pleasure. So thank Melissa, you. um, where can our, we're obviously going to put all the links, but just for the people listening, where can people connect to you? How can they, you know, access the resources that you have? What's the best way to follow you? I would say the best place to follow me is on Instagram. And my Instagram handle is at F. Yeah. M. Fabello. Um, but also, yeah, but also like melissafabello.com has all the information you need, social links, whatever, if that's easier. Okay. Fantastic. And we'll obviously link that in all the show notes. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on today. This was really, really an impactful conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. And with that, Clitorati, we're going to see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
If you liked this and are curious about our Clit Talk curriculum, we have a waitlist for our upcoming free workshops and our Sex and Empowerment Signature Masterclass in 2022. Nothing like starting the new year guided by pleasure. Sign up for the waitlist to come tap into your pussy sanctuary with Katie, myself, Sugar, and Lindsay at www.clittalkshow.com backslash waitlist. That's clittalkshow.com backslash waitlist.